Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, welcome to Bergen Park. We're glad that you guys have gathered with you this, uh, gathered with you, gathered with us, gathered with you too. This morning, we're glad to have you here. It's good to see you. If you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in two different places. We're going through this series called Idols. And you may not realize this, but idolatry is very much alive and well. If you're wondering how it's doing, it's doing well. Idolatry is really, really thriving. It's, it's doing excellent. It's doing excellent today. And it's thriving in the human heart. And when you go through Scripture, what you discover is that idolatry is the sin beneath the sin. When you ask that question, you know, why do I do what I do? You know, Romans 7, why do I do what I do? The things I don't want to do, I do. I do the... What's going on? And Scripture says there's something that's beneath the surface of your life. And sometimes when we're finding ourselves in that pattern, we have to stop and say, why? What am I looking for? And see, idols promise, but they can't deliver. Because they say, if you pursue me and if you get me, you're going to find approval. If you find me, you're going to find comfort. If you get me and you you obtain me, you're going to have a secure life. And who doesn't want that? I mean, who here doesn't want security and comfort and control and power? And all of this is wrapped up in this little idol if you'll just bow down and worship me. And as soon as you do, that's when it's got you. It enslaves you and it holds on to you and it transforms you into the likeness of what it is. And so we're going through the series during Lent. If you don't know, this is a series in Lent in which we're kind of examining as we move towards the cross. We don't like to talk about sin in our culture, but sin's a vital understanding of why Christ died, that he came because of our brokenness, that we can't rescue ourselves. We need to deliver to come and to rescue us. And and so as we go through the next 40 days, we're going to be looking at that sin underneath the sin. So let's go to Ecclesiastes, which is somewhere in the, the middle of your Bible. I think it's, I looked in some of the pew Bibles, if you have one, it's around page 550, Someplace around there in your Bible, I don't know. Uh, you can look at 550. If it's there, that's just a miracle. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 are going to be there, and then we're going to jump over to Ezekiel chapter 14. So two different places. First, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and then we'll jump over to Ezekiel chapter 14 as we ask the question, what's beneath the surface of my life? Here we go. Ecclesiastes 4. The writer says, And then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work that comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. Now let's jump over to Ecclesiastes. So that means you're going to take a right about 200 pages or so. It's page 700 in your pew Bible. I know the Old Testament, we don't probably know those as well. So Ezekiel, just kind of take a right 200 pages maybe, and you'll find Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, verse 1 through 5. And then certain of the elders of Israel, Ezekiel 14, came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel talking. Son of man, these men have taken idols in their heart and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, 
Speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart sets a stumbling block of iniquity before his face. And yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold, listen to what he's saying, I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me, and why? Through their idols. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we... We all come in here and we need grace. We need deliverance. We need your presence. We need your power. We all stand on equal ground as those who need your healing and restoration. And yet, Father, what this reveals to us is so often we don't know what we're dealing with because it's blinding us. And so in Jesus' name, Father, wherever we are, as we walk into this space, Holy Spirit, would you, would you teach, would you reveal, would you speak, would you direct and guide us? We need you. We need you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, idolatry is not a category that we tend to think about. You think of idolatry, you think of something maybe in Asia where people are bowing down to stone or metal. But Ezekiel says, no, what you've done is you've taken something and it's become an idol in your heart. There's a deeper form of idolatry. It's, it's heart idolatry. We discovered in Romans 1, it's when we take something in creation and we elevate it to the position of the creator. That God has created great things. And each one of you, understand, you have desires, needs, longings, hopes, dreams. None of them are bad. It's what we associate with them. It's how we try to get them. And often, these desires, these longings, these needs, we associate security with them. Comfort, approval, power. And if I have this thing, if I have success in business, if I got a fat 401k, you know, fat, and it's overflowing, then I'm gonna be secure. If the government is together and my people are in power, wow, then I can rest easy at night. If there isn't a war in Europe, if there isn't nuclear armament, you know what I mean? All of these things, they stir us up and we say, if this was happening then, hey, my life would be okay. If I had health, if I had beauty, if I had the approval of others, then my life would be okay. That's what Ezekiel is addressing. Because see, what's happening, and first we're gonna go to Ezekiel 14, the elders, the people that are leading and shepherding God's people, they're coming to God, they're coming to the prophet Ezekiel, and they have some issues, and I, I imagine they're legitimate legitimate questions in verse one. These elders come and they're asking questions of God, but as God is looking into their hearts, as God sees into our hearts, he says something's wrong. We see this in Ezekiel 14 verse four. If you wanna go back there, Ezekiel 14 verse four, God looks as these men are coming in prayer to God, to, to the prophet, and I, the Lord, will answer them as he comes with his multitude of idols, verse four. He's saying, I'm gonna answer you, but I'm only gonna answer you in terms of your idolatry. Because I can't address all these all other great questions you have until I look in your heart and I address what's keeping you, what's blocking you from me. I'm not gonna address anything else. Now, why does he say that? Well, if you rewind one verse and go to verse three, he tells us, he gives us a diagnosis of what idols do to us. And if you look in verse three, he says, the son of man... 
Son of man, these men have taken, and he's describing these leaders, right? Pastors, elders of the people. They've taken idols into their hearts. And because they have, they've set a stumbling block of iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? They don't realize. And see, that's the problem with idolatry. You don't know it's there. And what it does is it sets a stumbling block that as I'm looking out at you right now, I think I see fine. There's nothing in front of my face. Now, I may need to go to a class on seeing clearly. And if I go to this class on seeing clearly, then I'll see clear in life. But he says, no, what I have to do is before I can address your questions, before I can answer your prayers, I gotta rip this thing from before your face. Because see, if, if you have an idol in your heart, every question you ask of God, every prayer, is really to fuel this, right? I'm coming to God, and God, I think I need you, but I don't need you. I need you to take care of my idols. Because I need to be in control. I need to know my kids are okay. Is it wrong to want your kids to be okay? No. But when your kids are being okay, is, is your God Wow, parents, you're going to run that kid into the ground because your expectations are going to be too great for him. There's nothing wrong with success in business. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have enough. But when wanting to have enough becomes the idol of your heart and it gives you security, it will run your life into the ground because you're not designed to worship those things. They're not enough. They're not significant. And so here's the idea. Can you put up that picture of the iceberg? Here's the idea, and I'm going to say this as you look at this picture. Whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over your life and your behavior. Whatever rules your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your life and behavior. Your life and behavior is above the surface. It's what we see, right? But when you have an idol in your heart, what you have is you have all of these lies. Because that's what idols do. They're great at lying. If you get me, you'll be happy. If you lose me, you might as well take your life. Have you noticed over the last few years how many successful people, celebrities, business men and women have taken their life because something went wrong? Why? Because they had an idol in their heart. Listen, if you lose this, your life is over. And some of you felt that. I know I felt that. Shame can do that to you. You're so far from God. You're so far from others. You might as well just end it. What is that? That's a lie. That's a lie from an idol. And then idols limit beliefs. This is who God is. This is who you are. And they lead, as we discovered in Romans 1, right? Feudal thinking. Our hearts become dark, and eventually over time, they start to, they start to enslave us. They start to enslave us. So whatever rules your heart will exercise control over your behavior and over your life. So Isaiah 29, 13, we see this all in the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, because this people draw near to me, notice they're coming near to God with their mouth, right? Praise you, God, we love you. All right, we got our hands up, we're excited. God's stirring in us. We honor with him with our lips, but notice, I don't care about your lips. I don't care about your mouth. I don't care about what you're saying if your heart is far from me. Their fear of me is empty. It's just a commandment taught by men. I don't care about, have you remember, God says, I don't care about your sacrifice. I want to see mercy. I want your heart. And so let me ask you, what's keeping you from giving your heart fully to God? 
That's what he's after. What's functionally in the place of God in your life and you're looking at it and you're saying, man, I have to have this. And if I don't have this, I'm not okay. That's an idol. Tim Keller, if you need a book on this, Counterfeit Gods, it's short. Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, excellent resource. Here's a quote that Tim Keller gives about idolatry. He says, a counterfeit God is anything so central in your life so central in your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought, right? Money just flowing out of your hands, isn't it? Time, I can give my time to this. This doesn't feel like work because it's an object of worship. It can be family, good things, Idols are not bad things. Career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face, social standing. It can be this need for romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and standing. Uh, I think I missed something. Competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue. An idol is whatever you look at in your heart. And you say, if I have that, then I'll feel significant. I feel my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. And I'll feel significant and secure. You're starting to feel the weight. Do you spend time examining? I encouraged you last week. There's an important practice. comes from a guy named St. Ignatius. It's called the prayer of examine. That at the end of your day as you survey, hey, what did I go through? What did I experience? Where was their fear? Where was their insecurity? And you're not judging yourself. Often we go to God and we just got judgment, right? Shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have done that. But it doesn't allow you to reflect. And what you wanna do is you wanna come into God's presence and say, God, here's my day. You know, when I was having this conversation with my son, I just, what was that? Man, I want things to be okay with him. I want him to follow Christ. I want, Lord, I just need to give that to you. It's a good thing, isn't it? God, I look out at my world, my neighbors. I look out what's going on. I'm just so grieved. I'm hurt for that. I want to take control. I want to get angry at somebody. Anybody in here want to get angry at somebody? <laughs> just yell at you. Fix things. Make it right. And what we need to do at the end of the day is say, God, man, what's going on there? I just want to acknowledge it and I want to give it to you because it's not helping me to love you and it's not helping me to love others. Do you have that practice in your life? It's It's vital. It helps us to identify what are the attachments that are in your heart? What, what are the ordering of things that are too important? This has to be okay, this has to be okay. That's a broader definition of what idolatry is. And, and understand today, we're looking at the idolatry of success. And here's the question, is there anything wrong with success? Is it evil? Does God want us to work and to give our passion and our investment? There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, in, in Genesis, we won't go there right now, but in Genesis 39, there's a whole story. You remember Joseph? Tough life. I mean, he, he had his father's love, which is nice, but his brothers hated him. Sold him off into slavery, and what happened? God's hand was on his life. What they meant for evil, what did God do? Right? He couldn't see it at the time, and I imagine some of you are there. You're looking at your life, and you see this evil. You see this mess and suffering. How can God do anything good with this? And what, what we hear in the story of Joseph is God brought great success in his life. So success is not the problem. 
God has designed you for work. And he's designed you to take pride in what you have, but not to replace him with that pride. Because Romans 1 says we're to honor and give thanks to God. And if your work and your success is the goal, then you can't give honor and thanks to God. You're just kind of taking what God's given you for yourself. And God gives us success as a gift. He gives us the abilities, the talents, the skills. And we should take pride in those things as a way of giving gratitude to God. God, thank you that you've provided this for me. I don't know why you've gifted me this way as a leader, but I, I am grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the way it cares for my needs. That's a picture of how success can find its right position before God. And so let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter four, because in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes deconstructs idols. Solomon, who we assume is the writer of Ecclesiastes, we're not quite certain, but it sounds like Solomon. He had pretty much everything that he wanted. He had pleasure, too much pleasure, honestly. He had wealth, he had significance, he had power, he had everything, right? If I only had this, then I'd be okay, right? And he had all of those things, but as he looked at them and he lived for them, he found them to be vain and empty. They weren't enough to meet the deeper needs of his heart. And so he said, vanity of vanity, everything is vanity. It's a striving after the wind because if I'm living for it and not for God, it's, it's not enough. So let's go back to Ecclesiastes 4. And what we see is a deconstructing, an, an evaluation of success through the lens of three types of people. We're gonna see two Proverbs, and it's describing three types of people. So Solomon's looking out at, at your life. He's looking at Evergreen, and this is what he's evaluating. Look at verse four. He's looking out at our lives, and he says, and then I saw, verse four, Ecclesiastes for all the toil and all the skill and work. Why are we working? Why? Comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. And he says in verse five, the fool, he just folds his hands. He's given up and eats his own flesh. Verse six, but better is a handful of quietness then two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. You see it repeated twice, striving, toil. Have you ever watched somebody chase the wind? <laughs> Maybe a kid would try, right? It's ridiculous. But he says that's what idolatry does in our hearts. It's, it's ridiculous. You're chasing something that's not there. And see, Solomon's surveying life, and he's looking at us. And, and as he sees people that are successful and they're rising, they're climbing the ladder, he's not celebrating because he looks beneath the surface as, it, as you look at an iceberg and he says, what's at the bottom is this envy that we have? Comparison. What's driving us isn't honor and gratitude. Hey, God, thank you, you've given me this and I wanna honor you with it and thank you that you've given me these resources and you allow me to give them to who I want and wow, what a blessing that you've given me these skills. Instead, what happens is these this gift has become the giver. The creation's become the creator. And now we're worshiping something. And our heart is set on it. And the problem with envy is not simply that you want the car. You don't just want the car. You don't just want the house. You want it what it says about you. Can we be honest? It's not the car, guys. It's not the house. It's not the vacation. It's not the picture on Instagram, it's what the picture says. And when you look at that, do you know what it's saying to you? Do you hear it whispering to you? 
if you have me, if you possess this, then you're gonna have me. That's what envy is. It's about something as much deeper and we're not aware of that. And see, when we're not aware of that, it's because we have a hand in front of our face and we're not seeing the direction that it's taking us in. That's Solomon's assessment. It's not just Solomon's assessment, but there's this other very famous person named Madonna who said the same thing. And you may not like Madonna, but in this interview with Vanity Fair, I, I gotta be honest, she's, she's really honest about where she is. I wanna read this for you. Madonna, who's reached all of this success, and this was a number of years ago, she says, I have an iron will, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. That's great self-awareness right there. All of my efforts, every concert, to fill this feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it. I discover myself as a special human being and then I'm on to another stage and I think I'm, okay, I'm mediocre and now I'm uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of simply being mediocre. And that's always pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. It, it probably never will. Does that land? There's something driving me. And I get to the top, right? And I don't know what it's like, 60,000, 100,000 people screaming for you, you know, people crying and fainting. Who knows what that's like? That must be, it's probably a temptation you don't want. It's not enough. We look at it and we're like, that would be enough. That house would be enough, right? That income would be enough. And then you get there and you climb, you get up to the top and the, the hamster wheel just goes back down to the bottom. I gotta run harder. I gotta achieve more. And she's saying inadequacy and mediocrity is fueling my heart and I'm trying to take all of this success and pleasure and, and it's not doing it. And so what's gonna happen in Ecclesiastes 4 is Solomon, he's diagnosing that. So let's go back Ecclesiastes 4. And, and in verses five and six, so three metaphors, and they all have to do with hands. So we're gonna do a lot of hand work today. I hope that's okay. Three metaphors that have to do with hands. And he says the fool, verse five, he folds his hands, right? He's given up. Because see, he's looking out just like Madonna. He feels the mediocrity. He says, I'm done. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing the rat race. I'm just chilling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shut down. He eats his own flesh. Verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. So now in the English, you're gonna see the word hands, 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 and it's the same English word. But see, in the Hebrew, it's actually three different words, three totally separate words. In verses five, six, and then again in six, those words for hands, it's not the same word, and actually it's trying to communicate something to us. And so you'll see them. And we're gonna go through this. The fool doesn't just fold his hands. He, what he does is he does this. If you do this, this is your yod. A yod goes from here in Hebrew to here. It's called a forearm. And when you fold and you look out at the envy at life and the striving and all the hard work, right? And you've probably felt that sometimes. You're like, forget it. I'm opting out. I'm gonna go and do, I'm gonna do this. And here's a picture of what that looks like. 
I'm just going to, I'm going to give up. Now, there's some work I need to do. There's some stuff I need to take care of. But I'm just going to cash out. And what it says is over time, the guy that just kind of folds his yacht, I'm giving up. I'm not going for it. I'm cynical. I'm giving in. I'm not working on this anymore. He eats his own flesh. Meaning everything you've stored up, it's going to be gone. Work is a good thing. And the more that you kind of pull back and you, you just kind of give up at life, it destroys relationships. It destroys your money, right? It destroys you. You start eating your own flesh. Now you're in debt and you become a drain emotionally, relationally, financially on everyone else around you. Because you, you said, God, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I'm just giving up. I'm giving up. And some of you may feel that in different ways. You've just kind of folded your yod. You've given in. And Solomon's saying that's not the way to respond. If that's where you are, it's okay to be there. There's grace for that, but that's not the place that's gonna lead to life. So what's the other metaphors? We're gonna jump instead of to the second one, to the third one, to the end, because he's got two bad decisions, right? In the middle, one good. So let's go to that third metaphor, which is better is a handful of quietness than to coffin. That's that word there. It's kind of like, <coughs> kind of like that, sneeze. Coffin, two, two coffin. And a coffin is not like a yacht. A yacht is your forearm. A coffin is this, but it's actually this. A coffin is, is that need to grab at life. I, I need more. And notice it's not one, it's two. And he says it's a toil. It's a striving after the wind. This is the person whose idolatry is not giving up. This is the person that's just going for it. And they're blind to their ambition and success is everything and career and hope and outcomes are everything in their life and they're just doing this. They're doing this constantly. Here's a, here's a picture <laughs> of what that might look like. And, and now this person's just in a game, right? Now this is a losing game, guys. Do you know why? Because what's gonna happen? I mean, you can try to get it under your pits, right? Like you're trying to, you're grabbing and as you're grabbing, what are you seeing? everything you don't have. Now imagine it's not money that she's grabbing. What if it's identity? What if it's control, comfort, approval, a sense of security and a sense of peace? And what you're doing is every time you're grabbing, you're letting go and you're grabbing and you're letting go and you cannot rest. And so well, it's a toil. And Solomon's saying, don't pursue life with two coffin. And don't pursue life with just two yods. I'm gonna give up. I'm gonna cash it in. Because see, I, I understand that picture. If I had to put myself in a category, it wouldn't be just, sometimes I wanna give up. You know, I feel that. But most of the time, I'm just like, and here's how that works out in my life. You know, every Sunday I come up, and some of you are so kind, you're kind. So don't stop saying this, but you'll say, hey, that was great, right? And I know you're saying, you're being genuine. I don't hear that was great. You know what I hear? Do it again. Can you do it again? And I walk at her and no, I can't. Oh my gosh, Lord, how are we gonna do this again? Why? Because my identity's wrapped up in your approval. I'm an approval junkie. I am, I know that. My story is a story of rejection in life may not know that, but a lot of rejection. I, I was dyslexic. I was that kid sitting at a chair and at a desk, and I'm looking at this paper like, I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. And the teacher's getting angry, right? Because why are you not doing, I guess you're just 
disobedient. It's like, I have no idea and I have no way to tell you I'm lost. Just a feeling of rejection and, and being cast away. So what did I do? I'm like, listen, I'm never letting anybody see my insecurity and my, I'm gonna be the smartest guy in the room. That's what I said. I mean, that was probably like ninth grade. It started to shift, right? And I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna overcome. I'm gonna fight. I'm gonna get what I need. I'm never gonna let anybody know that they've hurt me. I'm never gonna tell you I'm sad or I feel vulnerable or I feel weak. No, I'm gonna accomplish this and I'm gonna go out in life. And, and, and listen, you know what? It kind of worked. <laughs> How sad is that? It works. You know what's so frightening is when you give up the broken way of approaching life and you start resting your identity in God, it's, it's quite scary, guys, honestly. When you start examining, if I don't have that insecurity in this, right? When I wake up in the morning and I'm not doing this and fighting for it, what, what's motivating me? And you've gotta find, yeah, I gotta get deeper. I gotta, God, you gotta heal that. And for me, it was like, Jesus, where were you in fifth grade? Have you experienced that moment where you're sitting in, a counselor had to take me, where were you? Jesus, what were you doing? Why would you abandon me? Why would you allow that to happen to me? Why would people laugh at me? And I found that Jesus was there. He was present. I didn't know how to connect to him. I didn't know how to hear from him. And he wanted something greater. And this challenge and these struggles have led me to a place where I'm like, Jesus, I, I wanna grab at you. I wanna surrender to you because I know what it's like to be exhausted and tired and an addict and kind of running after life. I, I need you, Jesus. But the only way I can get the fullness of Jesus is I gotta give him the fullness of my heart. Guys, are you giving that to him? That's what idolatry is about. It's about understanding what's, what's truly going on. So if it's not folding your yacht and it's not this kind of, right? What is it? Here's, here's the last metaphor, the third metaphor or the second metaphor, which is our third, anyways. The fool folds his yod, he gives up, he eats his own flesh, but better is a, a cough, not a coffin, a cough. Better is one handful, but notice with what? With quietness. This is not somebody who's giving up, this is somebody that's given their best, but they know what their best looks like, I'm giving, my, I'm giving my all to you. I'm giving my cough, but I'm doing it with rest. Now, our culture does not understand that rest and work can be the same thing, right? And some of you are like, no, it can't. Yeah, it can. Now, if your work is your security, no, it can't. If your work is your identity, no, no, it can't. If your work is your comfort, if your success in life and the approval of others is what gives you meaning and value, no, it can't. But if it's coming from a source that can't be taken away from you, then your work becomes freedom because I have an identity and I have a value and I have a love and I have a, a sense of worth and significance and it's not coming from the world, right? It's not coming from the fact that my relationships all have to be right or my work has to all be right or the country has to all be right. That's not my security. Instead, I'm taking my security from the one who has loved me and given himself for me, the one who created me and is pursuing me. And even though I'm doing this in life, he's still coming after me. He's not rejecting me. He's patient with me. And it's taken me 48 years <laughs> to kind of get down from here Jason, come on, man, come on, come on, patience, patience, right? Are you there? He's patient with you. He doesn't want any of us to perish. 
all come to everlasting life. And he continues to work on us. Why? So that we can get to a place where we can have an open hand approach to life. See, what Ecclesiastes, what he realizes, what, what the writer is saying is Ecclesiastes 5.19. And you see this five places throughout the book. Ecclesiastes 5.19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth, notice God's given it. He's at work in it. Doesn't mean you didn't work hard. But who gave you those talents? Who set you in the generation that needed engineers? You could be born on the top of a mountain to Tibet. You're only gonna get so far with your skills. Or maybe you were born in the 14th century. How much is hard work gonna get you when you grow up in a caste system? Do you realize so much of our success is outside of your control? You don't control where you're born, the intelligence you have, the economy that you're born into. How much control do we have? It's a gift of God. I have these skills and abilities in it. And you know what? It perfectly fits in this economy and I'm doing well. And he's saying it's a gift from God. To give them wealth and power. God is the one who gives power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. Guys, this is the gift from God. Solomon realized that life is a gift. Idols tell you, and we talked about it this last week, to achieve, achieve. Do you feel tired? Idols will absolutely wear you out. You'll feel exhausted. You'll feel enraged. How many of you feel rage? Just, ah, anger. What is that? You want to control life. I want to be in control, and I'm not, and so I'm afraid to admit I'm not in control. And I'm afraid to admit my life's out of control. And Solomon realized it. Only when God was able to get to the bottom of that, I'm not okay, God, and life's not okay, and yet you love me and you are with me. And I found that life was a gift from God. And it didn't mean that there wasn't fear and insecurities and difficulties, but I knew the place I needed to turn because that was my identity. And it wasn't in these things, it's in, it's in him. It's in him. And, and see, Jesus is that answer. Because idols say achieve, Jesus says, will you just receive? <laughs> Jason, listen, fifth grade, what was that about? It's trying to humble you, brother. Hog tie you. So that at 48, you'd realize that all these insecurities, man, I was there. And those hurts and those pains, listen, I want to fill that up. And only when I can step in that, and you've got to receive it. You know what's the hardest thing for us to do is just receive, to be in reception. <laughs> I want to be in control. I want to lead. And he says, no, 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 no. You need to receive. Do you know the story of Naaman? You ever heard that Naaman? If you don't, it's okay. It's a little obscure. Naaman was this powerful dude, totally powerful, tons of bucks. Had a letter from the king, but he had leprosy. Go read this. Kings, I think 2 Kings 5. And so he hears about Elijah. Now, he's been beating up the Israelites, but he hears about Elijah. And he heals, hears that Elijah can heal. So you know what he does? Takes up his wad of money. He takes up the letters from the king and he goes to the king of Israel. He says, here's my money, give me the healing. I can earn this. Success, I'm powerful enough. God should be impressed with me. And you know what the king of Israel did? 
ripping his clothes. Like, listen, dude, you don't get our God. Our God's not like your God. He's not impressed with you, okay? He's not going to be like, wow, you're really cool. He's going to strike you down with this kind of pride. And so he's ripping his clothes. He's like, you need to go to Elijah, right? And so he goes there, and, and the prophet doesn't even, he comes to the door. Prophet don't even come out. Why? Because that's what this brother needed, humility. He sends out a servant girl and says to Naaman, hey, go wash in the Jordan seven times, and then you'll be healed. And Naaman's like, you, you, anybody can do that. He brought his sword. He was, he was saying, hey, you know, go slay a dragon. Naaman would get that, right? Go kill somebody for me, and then I'll heal you. He gets success. What God had to do was to humble him. He said, anybody could do that. Anybody can wash in the Jordan. The Jordan's nasty. But see, I need your heart. I need you to surrender. I need you to submit. It was only when he submitted and he did it and he walked out and his leprosy was gone, but also his idol of success was gone. He realized Jesus is that one that can address those things, but we have to humble ourselves. The path to healing is the path of acknowledgement and confession. God, I need you. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, I don't know where that, that blockage is for you, where that hurt is for you, where that pain is. But you know, the beauty of Christianity is you just, you need to give it to him. God, this is my fear. This is what I'm trying to control. And I'm striving after, but Jesus, I, I need your healing and I need to know that you are my security when my life is insecure. You are my peace when everything's unpeaceful in my life. Would you come in? I need you. And you know, he loves to respond to that. He loves to heal the Naamans and shock them with his grace. So if you haven't grabbed the communion elements, it's our opportunity, but we want to do this in a worthy manner to reflect on where we are. To reflect on the sin, the brokenness, the insecurities in our life. And we're going to spend, as Elizabeth plays, we're going to spend some time just in reflection to the Father. And let's Surrender those things. Allow him to address those things in your life and then we'll receive these elements together.